you really need to challenge yourself. Am I really solving something? And do I really passionately want to wake up at four or five o'clock in the morning and work until 11 or 12 o'clock at night every single freaking day of the week for the next X number of years? Because building food companies is not a two or a three year exit potential. It is a decade or two. Welcome to the Consumer Rundown Podcast, your destination for the people, companies, and trends transforming today's consumer markets. We are your hosts. I'm Penny. And I'm Dimitri. Today, I'm joined by Melissa Facina, co-founder of City Capital. Melissa has seen it all, from building her own operations firm to investing in powerhouse brands. Get ready for a candid conversation about what it takes to win in this competitive landscape within consumer. Melissa, welcome to the Consumer Rundown podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. To begin, do you want to do a quick introduction of yourself? Sure. I'm Melissa Ficina, co-founder of City Capital. Uh, City is a relatively new firm, let's say four to five years in the space as an investment partner. I've been in the industry for basically a lifetime. I grew up on a factory floor in my dad's beverage factory, which I think I've probably said now a gazillion times. But that basically gave me a love for operating. And I ultimately launched an emerging CPG operating firm called City Ops. That firm has been part of 425 awesome brand builds. We have successfully held the hands of just over 90 of them as they have exited. And that team was really a powerhouse team of operators that got a lot of interest from other investors to help them validate or diligence opportunities in the space that they wanted to deploy. I had a love for food, a love for emerging beverage, uh, food and beverage. I really feel passionately that better quality products need to make their way to the mass market. And so we were doing that from kind of a food operations consulting perspective. And I fell in love with what it meant to redefine the investor-investee relationship uh, with the management companies uh, in these businesses. And so started to explore what it meant to get involved in investing. And about five years ago, we launched City Capital, which is a combined investment firm with in-house operating expertise. Uh, The entire City Ops team moved over. And so uh, we're now a team of 25, one-third investors, two-thirds operators, and investing in what we hope are the biggest growth businesses in the space. We'll explore that later in the podcast. But before we do that, do you remember your first investment? My first investment via City Capital? via City or your first investment in general? Ironically, City was a very strange culmination of a JV partnership. So we didn't start out as an investment firm that then went to pick its first deal. We started as my operating business and then a food and beverage liver of a family office. That family office was the former CEO of Credit Suisse USA and his son. And so they were investing in the space and actually asking me to deploy capital on behalf of them in the space. So when we launched our fund one, they had already had almost 40 investments that I had helped them deploy in their family. We raised additional capital around it. We raised a $70 million fund very quickly in like a one hour phone call. And from there, I would count that as my first investment post that, even though City Capital launched with 40 companies in-house. It was a brand that's in our portfolio now. It's called Magic Spoon. It has traveled with us through multiple funds, actually. And Magic Spoon was a business that we were in as operators originally. So I had established an amazing relationship with the founders. 
help them build the back end of their business very significantly. And because of that, we had an opportunity to deploy capital and have deployed a lot since. A great first investment. I think so too, but uh, I'm buying. What was your most recent investment? Mama Fuku. Another great investment, not a big name. Thank you. So let's look at those two bookends. We have Magic Spoon at the beginning. Momofuku has the most recent investment. By the way, let what me define change- for everyone. Sorry, sorry to interrupt you. Okay. We're 70% CPG, 30% food tech. My partner, Steven, really manages the food tech stuff. We've made a lot of investments in food tech in between and certainly post Mama Fuku. But I think most of the people uh, who listen to this are consumer investors. And so from a CPG investment perspective, it was Mama Fuku. So let's take those two bookends. Magic Spoon on one bookend and Momofuku on the other bookend. What has changed in your investment approach and philosophy between these two investments? Very good question. And I'll tell you, we're spoiled because those are both stellar businesses. Some of the ones we've chosen in between might not have quite been as banner of names. Our business ethos and philosophy has changed a lot in the last five years. So when we originally launched City Capital, we did it with City Ops, my predecessor firm, as a sister company to City Capital. As a result of that, all the amazing diligence work that we had done on behalf of other investors, ironically, we were not doing for ourselves as deeply as we should have uh, because it was a sister company. Um, We had made what I thought were, I don't want to call them mistakes in investing because everything is not a winner, but we have things that I think we could have made better value judgments on had we maximized our team's expertise it was those investments that taught us that we couldn't have sister companies anymore. The firms needed to be combined. We had to have access to our team at all times. And so there's two things that have changed. One is the depth at which we review investments and understand and know the businesses, their commercial opportunities, their areas for improvement, where and how our team can be helpful. Magic Spoon, we knew everything about because we had built the back end of the business. I won't consider Magic Spoon. I'll consider some of the ones post Magic Spoon. But then if you look at our our investment history in the last two years or two and a half years, once we combine the firms, all of those have gone through very structured diligence, very deep dives. Um, I would say the second thing that changed aside from the depth of review is the passion that I personally feel as an investment professional in supporting the relationships and partnerships with the management teams in these businesses. We are minority investors like almost every other investment firm in the space. And that means that our influence or ability to make change, I guess is the right way to say it, comes through influence, which comes through trust. It doesn't come through demand of majority ownership and forcing people to make change. And so I've really started to invest deeply Uh, myself and our team in building those relationships. That makes sense. In a previous podcast, you identified four criteria that you look at in entrepreneurs and the companies that you invest in. The first one is potential. The second one is great leadership. The third one is proven consumer interest. And the last one is promise of scale. I want to take a deep dive into each of these four criteria. What are you looking at to assess who has potential, who has great leadership, who has consumer interest, and whether or not they can get to scale. Yeah. So let's pick the most important one first, and then you're going to have to remind me so I don't forget what I said previously. Let's pick scale. Because for us, we are operators at heart. And so we look at everything at City Capital via the lens of scale. 
I think green juices, as an example, are a phenomenal product and I might be a buyer of a $15 green juice, you know, in, in a bodega in New York sometimes. That's not an investment that we're going to look to make though. We care about mass market infrastructure. We care about consumers in the flyover states, just like we care about them on the coastal states, being able to procure better quality food. And so really the only way to get there is to have a product a process, a formulation, and a cost structure that allows for scale. We can help them fill where those manufacturers are, what those pieces of equipment are, how to go from zero to $100 million very quickly. But if they don't have the, the core objectives into what makes a scalable product, it's probably not of interest to us. So I wanted to highlight what I think is most important first. Now let's talk about the potential of the entrepreneur. Aside from product and taste and scalability, the entrepreneur and or management teams, and the reason I'm defining it as both is not all the time does the entrepreneur end up running the business. And sometimes as an investor, you come in once the entrepreneurs already moved themselves out of the way, and now you're dealing with management teams. So we'll define them collectively. That's the next most important piece for us. Why? We have a team that we put inside of a business, depending upon what the, that business needs. Uh, and obviously it changes as that business develops or struggles. If we don't have the relationship and the trust with the entrepreneur, and that generally comes from them and or their teams knowing what they are good at and what they need help at. Um, and so for me, potential is about being able to look inward and say, hey, these are the things that I'm freaking great at. I, I can always get better at them, but like, I know I can own this a hundred percent. Here are the areas I know I'm going to struggle with no matter how many times somebody goes over with me, what I'm supposed to be doing. Like it just doesn't register. Okay, cool. No sweat. You get it. And now we can start helping you fill in the gaps. A great entrepreneur and or leader to me is someone who has the ability to look inward and understand what they need to put around them. And we're part of what goes around them in addition to whatever other pieces we plug in. That also, by the way, lends itself into leadership. I've seen a lot of really good companies, frankly, and a lot of really good products be ruined by bad leadership. And it's often by ego. It's often by the entrepreneurs who have gotten their business from zero to 50 million, zero to 75 million, whatever it is, uh, or built a massive business in direct-to-consumer, then the direct-to-consumer times have changed. And now the business economics mm -hmm. don't look so good anymore. But because that ego was there in what they have already created, they lack the ability to give that up and to understand that their business needs additional support. And so they become a terrible leader. They hoard everything themselves. They're not willing to share information with their investors, with the team who can help them around them. And frankly, we've seen some really great businesses crippled by that. What was the fourth one? Proven consumer interest. So I don't want to have to convince a consumer how to use the product. And so I totally understand that we might need to teach them certain ways to utilize the product. Uh, but like a cereal, let's go with Magic Spoon again. Everyone freaking knows what cereal is, right? You know how to eat cereal. You know when you want to eat cereal. Magic Spoon provides you multiple usage occasions. Maybe you don't feel so guilty eating it for dinner now uh, because it's high protein, low carbohydrate, but you know how to use a cereal. Mama Fuku, you know that you're going to put chili crunch on top of, you know, a taco or on top of, you know, an Asian dish that you order from a restaurant. Or if you have the guts, you're able to cook it. You know how to use a ramen noodle as an example. So we don't want to have to teach the consumer what to do with it. Um, and for me, 
frankly, like very rapid growth in either retail or direct to consumer is often tied to users understanding how to use it and then enjoy it, which is consumer acceptance, basically. Digging a little deeper on that, as an investor within consumer, one of the biggest things that you have to think about is the product or the brand going be a fad or able to sustain long-term growth. Is this something that will reach 10 to 15 million and hit a ceiling? Or can it scale to 50 million and above and be a good target for an acquisition? What criteria or frameworks do you use to evaluate this? So I'll just say like, we don't have a crystal ball and no one has a crystal ball. Uh, And so as an example of that, there was a ton of money that got deployed into the plant-based categories. And plant-based scaled way past $15 million in revenue. Uh, There were plenty of businesses doing substantially more than that before that market started to shift and pull inward. And so everyone thought that that had moved from trend to kind of new focal point of a diet. And everyone was wrong. It has retracted some, at least on the meat side, maybe not so much on the dairy side. So I don't think there is a right way to do it. I'll tell you, we, like a lot of investors, had our first fund that basically, well, maybe this isn't like a lot of investors, but but what is like a lot of investors is our first fund was willing to play in the lower revenue ranges. It also played in the higher revenue ranges, but basically we were okay investing in a business that had done one or $2 million in revenue and seeing if it had the potential to grow more than that. As we've grown up, we've realized that that risk might be a little bit too rich, especially in this macroeconomic climate. And so we now have revenue thresholds for where we're really willing to consider a brand. And usually that's 15 to 20 million in annual revenue. Every now and then we'll get in a slightly before that. Uh, if we really believe that the, the market and the data is pointing in the direction of this actually being something that has mass market viability. But most of the time, we are now waiting for the consumers to tell us that this has an option to stick around. And by the way, I'll I'll be totally frank with you and tell you, you know, most of what we're leaning into now are better versions or better macronutrients, macronutrient ranges of items that have already been proven past trendy. And so, you know, cereal, I'll go back to it just because we all know and understand cereal, that category has been around forever. It might be a new version of the category, but protein as a high protein product, protein and the likability of high proteins also been around for forever. Now sugar and the reduction of sugar and stuff has now also been around for years. So like you put them all together and I have a lot of confidence that people are going to care that they can consume something they understand with better protein and lower sugar. I'm cool. We don't need to call it keto. Yeah, it seems like we've gone from better for you to best for you. Why 15 to 20 million as your floor threshold? Once you reach that scale, what is the consumer signaling to you as an investor? Well, that's the low end. So we currently invest anywhere between 15 and 20 million in revenue, all the way up to 150 to 200 million in revenue. So it's not, that's not the number. Why is that important? You tend to have, I hate to say it like this, and I'm sure I'm going to not have some parties who like me for it, but I'll say it anyway. You're past the Whole Foods consumer. It's not just Whole Foods. Whole Foods used to be an amazing marketing support for a brand where you wanted to launch a better for you business, you went to Whole Foods. And that's great. And Whole Foods gave you that credibility, but it also might've given you three to $5 million in revenue, maybe a little bit more. But the point is you have to grow past that. We need to see what's happening in a Walmart 
or a Kroger or a Publix or a, you know, Target, something that's bringing mass market viability or direct to consumer, even though CACs are a disaster right now, it is important to see that you've got returning customers who are constantly after the same products. And so for us, that gets us to a revenue marker where we're seeing repeat purchase rate consistently. We're seeing an opportunity for uh, mass market viability. We're seeing big retail chains starting to take interest. But more importantly for us, by the way, we're seeing that we can now negotiate with big manufacturers. We can now start shaving costs off using our relationships in warehousing and 3PL in logistics in places that care about big volume revenue. And so for us to add to the bottom line of the business, which we care a lot about as operators, we have to get to a point of negotiating power. Our experience has taught us that starts to be where the scale can tip slightly in the favor of the brand, not a lot. Do you think if the macroeconomics improve in the future that you'll go back to investing in more earlier stage brands? Well, there's two things that are that are holding us back from this right now. One is macroeconomic environment. Well, actually, they're both defined as the macroeconomic environment. One sliver of that is, do consumers have dollars to buy really premium products in this climate? I mean, the consumer buying index is extraordinarily resilient, and it continues to shock me how resilient it is right now. But at some point, people are going to have to make a decision between paying for you know really high-end products and paying rent or a mortgage or you know a car payment. On the other side of that is money. We don't want to be the investor who has to hold the bag for a company. We want to be around a group of investors who have the ability to deploy capital in a business as it needs to grow. And right now, that's not really been the case. People have pulled substantially out of early stage food and beverage. Actually, investing across industries is down, period. But early stage has really, really depleted. And so when we put capital, if we were to put capital there, what that means is we're probably the only ones putting it there with any real value. I'm not talking about us deploying a one, two, three million dollar check and someone else writing a hundred thousand dollar check. That's not helpful. I'm talking about another one, two, three million dollar check alongside of us and the ability to continue writing those. That's not there. So if financing risk is still there in early stage, we probably have to go. Uh, but what I will tell you is we have scout funds in-house. And those scout funds are Food Tech Scout Fund and CPG Scout Fund. They write between $150,000 and $500,000 checks in brand new you know, businesses up to about $10 million in revenue. So the gap we don't currently fill in the, in the growth funds. And we're generally not the lead. We sit behind other leads. We deploy capital. We have our, our services team that gets attached to them from an operations perspective. And some of those businesses grow and develop beautifully. And then they get large checks from us later and over time. That's a way that we still want to play in the space, see what's going on, health, beauty, wellness, personal care, pet, food tech, you name it. But at least we're not risking massive amounts of investor capital in order to do that. So we are trying to fill that gap for entrepreneurs. Got it. Who else is filling that gap? And what do you think it looks like three years from now? With the recent pullback in funding, how might that change the landscape for consumer companies transitioning from emerging to growth stages? Could it make it more difficult for them to reach that $15, $20 million level where they attract larger growth investors? Does this potentially stifle innovation within the industry as a whole? I mean, I'm sure it can stifle innovation. It can also encourage innovation, right? Some of the best companies have come out of really dire financial times. 
And so I'll be totally honest with you. I'm one of the people in the space who actually believes we have too many businesses. I'm sure that I'm unpopular and anyone who's listening, who's like, well, my business deserves to be here. Well then hell yeah, your business deserves to be here. Like I'm not telling anyone whose business doesn't deserve to be here. I'm just saying there's far too many of them. Uh, The consumer has way too many choices. The shelf is only so big, right? Consumers only have so many dollars. Manufacturers only have so much space. Warehouses only have so much space. And so we actually need a reduction in the amount of companies and we need to go through kind of that healthy purging. So to be totally honest with you, I'm excited to have what I would consider to be the best businesses make their way through this process. What it will mean is it will force them to focus on bottom line. It will force them to build a company that is much more cash efficient. We might have slightly less top line growth. And by slightly less, I mean, instead of investors pushing companies to grow three and four X year over year top line growth, maybe they grow 50% to 100% a year top line growth, but they're strengthening their bottom line every time. That's a real freaking company, right? We don't need to keep building nonprofits where these businesses are purging cash all the time, having to go back to investors every six, nine, 12, 18 months for cash because they haven't built a business. They built a hobby. For me, I think it will actually make stronger businesses come through this, which will become more investable and more attractive for exit over time. That makes sense. If you're a founder just starting out, what are the key questions that you should be asking yourself before making that first large investment of 100000 to 200000 or fundraising a friends and family round? So the first thing I would tell you is like, why are you doing? For me, passion is really important, personal passion, but also, and so you have to have that. If you can answer that, that's great. But the other part of that is what gap are you filling of why you're doing this? Is there really a need in the market? Or are you the one who is doing this for yourself because you eat this product at home that you make for yourself every day? But like when you go to, family gatherings and you bring it, almost no one else eats it. Like that's not really solving a gap. And so you really need to challenge yourself. Am I really solving something? And do I really passionately want to wake up at four or five o'clock in the morning and work until 11 or 12 o'clock at night, every single freaking day of the week for the next X number of years? Because building food companies is not a two or three year exit potential. It is a decade or two. And so that's the first thing. The second thing is, is there a way to bring my ego into check and not care if it takes me three years or four years to get to a million dollars in revenue, but I can do it on my own personal savings, or I can do it on a few dollars that I bring in from friends and family raise. I don't need to be the one on LinkedIn saying I started a business on January 1, 2023, and it's January 1, 2024, and I'm on a million dollars today, right? It probably also raised $2 million to get there. So really challenge yourself on what you're after from a growth objective. The third is, what am I really good at? And what are the gaps that I have? And I have to be really honest with myself about that. Me as an entrepreneur, it wasn't until I recognized the gaps I had building city ops and added to them for the people who could fill the skill sets I didn't have that the business blew up. Because before that, I was withholding the growth of the company because I didn't know what I didn't know, or I didn't know how to advance something, or I couldn't fill in a certain gap. I had to be willing to check myself on that, realize that really I'm a leader and a visionary more than anything. And I had to fill the gap with other people doing stuff. 
And that's the type of thing you need to do as an entrepreneur. And then the very fourth thing that I'm a big proponent of is just because someone wants to invest in your business does not mean that you need to take their capital. Please make sure that you are picking the right first investors who you put on your board and who you take your first checks from can be monumentally impactful to help your business succeed or block you from maneuvering the ways that you need to maneuver to advance your business ahead. Do you think early stage investors sometimes do founders a disservice by not providing more candid feedback? Instead of simply saying, it's not the right opportunity for us, they could offer more specific reasons based on internal discussions. This could reveal if, for example, they see the company or founder as currently uninvestable. While potentially difficult to hear, wouldn't such honesty ultimately save founders time, money, and effort, allowing for quicker course correction? I think that many investors, regardless of stage, are not honest. And so, yes, for sure, early stage investors can help an entrepreneur get in or get out much more quickly. But look, we're all human. And one thing I've learned about humans over the years is that we all hate to have hard conversations. And some people are better at it than others. Some people get aggressive because they don't want to have them. Some people bow out. But hard conversations are hard. That's why they're called hard conversations. Um, And you don't want to hurt someone's feelings. You don't want to tear down their dream because what if you're wrong? I think it is imperative to share why it's not a fit for you or what you're seeing. I have coached many, 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 many a founder through what it means to get funding from a different investor, how they need to approach them or talk to them, what they need to tweak in their approach, why I think this is not a good scenario or whatever the reason is. And I'm willing to have that. But you know what that has afforded me? It's afforded me trust. Now, when you go and have conversations with our portfolio company leaders or even ones we haven't invested in, They will tell you, I know Melissa's going to tell me just like it is. And I know that when she tells me she's freaking in, she's freaking in. And I know when she tells me that we have a problem, I'm probably going to hear that from other people, or I can get in front of it by trying to fix the problem and be able to be coached through what that would mean before talking to other people. I don't think we get that enough across the board. And I don't think we get enough honest investor partnership at all levels, not just early stage levels. Do you think there's a fundamental mismatch between the experience needed for successful consumer-focused investing versus the experience many investors possess? Investors coming from pure finance or non-operator backgrounds may lack the experience to have in-depth conversations about the nuances of branding, operations, retail channel development. From your perspective, Does this limit their ability to evaluate opportunities and add value post-investment in the same way someone with a deeper operational experience would? I think that's definitely accurate. Although I have seen some of the same behaviors in former CEOs who built, scaled, and sold a business and then started a firm. And you would think they would have that ability, but they don't always. But yes, I think there is a big void in investors who think they know how to operate a business by a spreadsheet. And CPG has a lot of nuance, especially around perishability and how that's managed and cost infrastructure. Oftentimes, what might look like it works well on a spreadsheet, or it looks like it doesn't work well on a spreadsheet, isn't really how it happens in real life. And so it's really hard to coach through that unless you really understand it. And you have to have done it a lot to understand it. 
We know not every investment will succeed. There will be winners and losers. How do you determine when it's time to cut losses on a company that's not reaching its potential? What specific signals and metrics do you analyze to make that decision? So I don't think it is just one metric or level. That's the first thing. So, you know, I've heard a lot from investors, even on our team, quite frankly, that we have coached and mentored into how we want them to look at businesses. And then other co-investors that we've been partners with elsewhere, where a, a brand might miss their quarterly sales forecast and they get crucified for it. And it's like, oh my God, this business must be going to hell because it's missed its forecast two or three quarters in a row. Well, that's not necessarily accurate. They could have had just the wrong freaking forecast, right? They could have had the wrong VP of sale who put something out there who didn't really understand the market and what was practical. They could have had pressure from investors who want top line growth that's not achievable or, or practical at all, but they feel like they have to put it there on a spreadsheet just to satisfy whomever they're bringing capital in from. And so I don't really give a crap if you miss your quarterly sales goal. What I care about is once we dive into the fact that you missed it, why you missed it, do we really understand the why? Was the forecast right to begin with? What corrective actions can we immediately put in place to adjust that so we understand the cash flow needs of the company? How we tend to evaluate is how do the leaders and management teams react to negative news in their business? And how quickly will they make a change? If they make the change quickly and are willing to recognize that change or fill the gaps, but the consumer doesn't adopt to that change, that might be a problem. We might have now hit a ceiling in a company that basically is the company might, might not be growing anymore, right? And so, so we have to look at critical thinking skills. And then we have to look at once you make adjustments in the market, does the market react to that? I would tell you, we're probably paying attention to that over the course of a good 12 month period of time before we make a determination. And then we'll try and force changes in a business to make sure our thesis is right on that before we do anything drastic. Yeah, that makes sense. I want to dig a little deeper in that. The skills required for a successful founder can differ from those of a strong operator. How do you differentiate the two skill sets? I don't want to say that there are no founders that are good operators, because there are some that are excellent operators as founders. But typically speaking, to be a founder, you are a visionary. You are ruled with passion. You have like a people focus. You are generally creative. You are looking to fill voids and gaps in the space and are trying everything you can to iterate and iterate quickly. Operators are much more balanced, right? They want to look at how something happens, why something happens. They don't want to make a move until they understand what levers they have to pull and then ultimately what those levers would do. Ironically, I define myself as an operator because I grew up in operation. The longer that I have been building the companies of City, I have realized that I'm probably really a founder more than I am an operator. I happen to have been bred an operator and these things have got put in me, but really I'm the one who like wants the build. I'm the one who wants to keep going. I'm the one who's like, who gives a shit about the risk? Let's just keep going and see what happens, right? Let's build the plane while flying it. And it's like that type of passion that you want to invest in and you want to support, 
but you better believe I have a great freaking team behind me who's like, Melissa, let me pull the ropes back a second and let me make sure we don't have this freaking plane fall apart if you're going to do this. And so that's really the difference is you need to have the pilot of the plane, but you also need to have the people who are checking the maintenance on the plane on a daily basis and making sure that plane can fly when you decide to take off. What's the biggest risk you've taken in your career? Merging the firms. Why was that risky? Um, It's not even really merging the firms. I completely gave up a business that was highly profitable, massively growing. What I would deem as very successful on a services basis front. Give it up for the dream of being a long-term private equity investor. People would say, well, how's that true, Melissa? You said you took your team with you and you merged it into this private equity firm. That's true. My team came with me, but my business is gone. That business that was a standalone company that I owned 100% of with no investor, that's not there anymore. I took the people and the opportunity and the knowledge, but I raised a ton of capital. I now have partners. I now have investors. I'm now in private equity. I'm still in the stages of building the something that is this big. So I have no idea yet if the risk I took on what I had here to go to here was worth it. Yeah. Time will tell. Time will tell. Was the decision to focus on growth equity versus, let's say, control buyouts, is that something you consider? Yeah, we are definitely considering it. I would be almost certain that City Capital will move into middle market buyout over time. We are primed and prepped for that. That's really the type of firm we are with the team we have in house. Um, And the real answer is cash. We have to prove ourselves in the investing landscape first. And so while we've raised cash probably faster than most other firms out there, we are still a new firm. And so we had to prove that we could do minority buying first uh, and show people that we knew how to pick them. I'm biased. Obviously, I like a lot of things about my portfolio. I think we know how to pick them. But now we need to show that we know how to support them and exit them. The second, and and by the way, people understand, by people, I mean, our investors and LPs understand that part of that is the talent we have in-house that can help these businesses. But that's very different than saying, we're going to put our talent in and be the only people responsible for this, and then ultimately exit it. That is something that is very much on my horizon and on the horizon of my partners. I think it comes in a few more years of being in the space and continuing to gain the type of investor confidence that, that knock on wood, we seem to have gained so far. Yeah, when I looked at your model, it was obvious to me that City is built for buyouts. The operating expertise you have is unmatched, certainly within the consumer space. From what I've seen, there's simply no other firm with your level of specialized operational knowledge in-house. Just my personal observation. We agree. To be honest with you, I believe is why we've had so much success in raising capital. Who we originally went to to raise capital, yes, it was friends and family of my partners, but they're all, frankly, high net worth individuals who have founded the largest private equity firms in the world. I won't name them by name to keep them confidential, but you all know what large private equity firms exist. And we are talking about literally the leaders of these firms who deployed their own personal capital into city. Why? Because they knew the operator model. They had known it from the businesses and industries they were in before. Food and beverage, to your point, or CPG doesn't have that. And so it wasn't a hard sell to them that creating that infrastructure here could be viable. 
And we weren't creating it from scratch. That was what was interesting. We had built a 10-year company that had all these successes in that. We were just now putting capital behind it. So the capital for us, fortunately, came in fairly easily. Now the macroeconomic climate has changed some. Everyone has had difficulty raising capital. We're no different than that, but, but I think we've been on the more fortunate side. And so for us, it's now about moving from high net worth individual to continue advancing our deep institutional partnerships. Because now to be a, a middle market buyout firm, you probably need four, three, four, five hundred million where you're deploying $50 million in a clip. And so we need the larger checks who we are proving ourselves to now who can write these checks that, you know, we're a firm worthy putting those dollars behind. So that's what we're after. Does that mean we will leave minority investing behind? I don't think so. I think we like minority investing to some degree. I just think we know we have the capacity to be great majority investors. I think so too. Beyond financial success, what do you want your legacy to be as an investor? Well, today, as I shared before, I feel so passionately about reshaping the investor-investee relationship. And if I'm being totally honest with you, that was the impetus of me starting this firm. I was constantly on the service side, but being brought in by either investors or the management teams. But I was, once you get in a business, you're almost not aligned with the investor anymore. You're aligned with the, the company team, right? Because you're inside of this business. And so I was witnessing where we were helping these companies get through tremendous challenges. We would go to a board meeting, we would explain these tremendous challenges and the solves for them. And I was witnessing investor after investor give really shitty advice and ask these companies to perform at levels that were obnoxious and that made no sense and that weren't even viable. But because we were the ones taking a check as a service provider, and not giving the check, our voice was silenced in the same way that some of these management teams were silent. And I was getting really frustrated about that. The only way I realized to command the voice at the table was to be the check writer. And that's really what led me in that direction. But I would love to craft a legacy of being able to be impactful and helping companies succeed via influence because you have the trust. And we go in, by the way, just so you know, we'll say to companies every time, we're going to go in and start diligence on your business. It's going to be like diligence you've never had before. We are going to rip your company apart. Don't be scared. Yes, we're about to be an investor. Don't hide anything from us because we're going to find it. And if we find it and you hide it, it's so much worse. Here's why I don't want you to be scared. I'm not going to come around on the other side of that and beat the shit out of you for valuation. I'm not going to come at you on the other side of that and tell you you totally screwed up A, B, C, D, or E. We may have a conversation that like, this is a real problem. We got to fix this thing. But the whole reason why we're doing this is because we want to make sure that we can be impactful to help you continue growing. We don't believe there's a perfect business. So understand it's going to be a lot of information and you're going to come out with a 40 to 80 page deep dive report on your company. And by the way, most of our founders come back and tell us that we understand their business just as well or better than they do after that report. But the point is, don't be scared. And what I've discovered is they're all terrified. They're terrified to let the investor in to know the truth because of the way most of the investors have interpreted information. And by the way, that doesn't mean that there's not a business we haven't walked away from after doing it. It's very, very rare. It often happens when someone is fraudulent, totally lies about information, and it shows their character. 
Or when we get in and we realize that the company needs a lot more cash than the business thought it needed, we're willing to give that cash or find a way to get the cash. But the company says, I don't think you're right. We're not going to add to how much dilution we're about to take. We're not going to take more money than what you're saying. And that's no problem. But we're not going to take the financing risk. Most of the time, we've been proven right, by the way. When you look at the landscape right now, what trends, what type of companies are you most excited about? Consumers at some point soon are going to have to decide where they deploy their dollar. People came through COVID with a lot more cash than they went into COVID with. They've gotten spoiled, in my opinion, when it's come to their palate, when it's come to going out to restaurants. And at some point, they're going to have to retract and come back home. And so what do they do with this spoiled palate? Now we need to provide them with easy solutions that are non-intimidating to make at home where they feel satisfied by exploring new flavors and tastes and worldly cuisines, but doing it in the comfort of their own home and with the, a price point that makes sense for them. That's why Mama Fuku for us is such a big deal uh, and has the opportunity to be so explosive. Same on the Emmy side. Literally, people can take these products into their house, figure out how they like to utilize them in a recipe format and make a dish that might've been a $25 dish in a restaurant have it be explosive on the palate, but be at home. Frozen, by the way, frozen meals also, I think, have that exact same potential. We're not really playing in that category yet, but I am seeking to play in that category for the exact same reason. It makes total sense. My wife and I both work long hours. She's at Amazon and often finishes around 8 p.m. We recently started using Cook Unity, a meal prep service. They deliver fresh, ready-to-heat meals, with great variety and taste. It's slightly pricier than cooking at home, but still reasonable. For us, it's a huge time saver and lets us try new dishes we wouldn't normally make. I definitely see the potential for this kind of service. There's a big market for it. Just so you know, to try Thistle. Thistle is a portfolio company of ours. It's a meal delivery service, super high quality, roughly 500 calories a meal, super diversified menu, excellent quality product, you'd probably enjoy it. I'll definitely try it. Last question. What principles drive you either professionally or in your personal life? I believe substantially in empathy. I really always want to make every decision rooted in empathy. And for us, that means don't pretend you know what someone's going through on the other side. You have no idea what's happening in their life. Uh, or what they're dealing with. And so let's give people grace and understand what they may be putting a face to you right now could be for something totally different. And so I really try and ask our team to lead with heart. Second is transparency and honesty and integrity. I just want to be direct and I want directness back. It might not always be easy, might not always be fun to hear, but like I do great if somebody just tells me like it freaking is so I can help them solve the problem and vice versa. Like I want to do the same thing back, which is why I care about being honest and direct in the investor community with a company uh, that, that you may not be driving with. And frankly, I'll be totally honest with you that like another driving factor for me is um, financial success. I really um, am married to certain financial success hurdles that I have for myself. I put them out there by year in what I'd like to achieve. And, and that's a driver for me. I like to write myself a check and keep it in my wallet and want to be able to cash that check by the date that I have on it. 
I've successfully managed to do that with the last four checks. I've never actually cashed them, but I could if I wanted to. Uh, I just keep upping the ante on myself. Um, and that's a motivational tool I use for me personally that ends up going through our business in terms of the stages of growth we have. Hopefully the checks get higher and higher. They certainly do. Well, congratulations on that. I love what you're building at City. Uh, most it was great to meet you, great to talk to you. Awesome, man. Thank you so much. This was like such a fun hour. Thank you. This concludes our interview with Melissa Ficina from City Capital. Thank you for joining. Please subscribe for more episodes of the Consumer Rundown podcast and visit us at consumerrundown.com. See you next time.